1: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Charles Nicholl, whose many books include The Reckoning, about Christopher Marlowe's murder, and The Lodger, Shakespeare on Silver Street. He's written three dozen or so pieces for the LRB over the years, and the latest, in the current issue, is on Elizabethan true crime drama. Hello, Charles, and thank you very much for joining me.
0: Great pleasure, Tom, to see you again.
1: So these these plays, dramatisations of real-life crimes, usually murders, aren't what we usually think of or what first springs to mind when most people think of Elizabethan drama. They aren't set in Elsinore or Venice or Malta. and The characters aren't dukes or princes. And you write in the piece that the chief frisson of true crime is not suspense but recognition. And then as now the stress on the everyday familiarity of the settings is at the heart of the true crime genre. So I don't know if you could maybe tell us about what happens in, in a typical one of these plays to give a, a sense of what they're like.
0: Well as you mentioned some of those uh, Shakespeare plays of course there's quite a few murders in Shakespeare uh, and even as we might talk about later um, Hamlet has some echoes of the true crime genre that was uh, very much fashionable when Shakespeare was writing Hamlet but the plays that um, I focus on in this piece uh, for for the LRB and in my general studies because I'm a bit of an addict of true crime and so where should I go but to 16th century true crime they span a, a dozen years or so either side of the sixteen uh, hundred. Uh, there's about a dozen of them that uh, survive, uh, well, that are known about, uh, but not all of them actually survive in text. A few made, them, made it into print, of which the best known are probably Arden of Faversham, printed in 1592, and A Yorkshire Tragedy, printed in 1608. Uh, authorship, in both cases, uncertain. So, this is a a smattering of plays in a a very uh, fertile and uh, busy period of Elizabethan drama. And um, Arden is really the first that we know about. And I think it probably is the first because it made quite an impact and influenced the the follow ups that were written in that vein. What do you see in these plays? Well, there are a few sort of um, common denominators. The first thing to say is that they are based on actual murder cases. This is true crime or what we nowadays call drama documentary and this in itself is an entirely new departure for the theatre. They're putting what one might call news in our journalistic sense on stage and that's really the first time that that's happened and indeed attendant on that might be quite a lot of uh, concern from the authorities or from those that keep an eye on these things as to whether that's exactly what the playhouses should be doing. So that's the first common denominator. These are real life murder cases. Uh, The characters appear with their own actual names, the locations identified, and the story is told as well as it happened or as it was anyway recounted in the um, playwright's sources. And I'll come on to those sources in a bit. But these plays present moments of violence, though, of course, like the true crime dramas, we all know and love today on our television screens, typically, although also there are podcasts, they're not really dealing in suspense. They're not really dealing in any questions of who done it or how is this going to end? Because these are cases that, um, well, certainly known about and indeed, increasingly, these are very topical cases that the, the authors can be reasonably certain the audience actually knew about and in some cases these are London murders pretty topographically close to where the audience is standing and sitting watching it enacted on stage so when I say that the frisson of true crime is recognition that idea that we see the murders taking place in these ordinary everyday recognizable situations the true crime of our current television's output puts a tremendous emphasis on meticulous sort of period detail talking about going a few decades back 50s 60s 70s clothes cars hairstyles whether they're quiffs or mullets according to decade songs that might be on the radio a packet of daz on the kitchen shelf those are sort of markers that for the watcher draw you in into this idea of this very recognizable landscape in which murder suddenly occurs
1: and some of those ones. The, the Elizabethan ones were set a few decades earlier, weren't they? So Arden of Faversham, nothing to do with the Forest of Arden, that Arden, Arden was murdered a few decades before the 1590s.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, the the Arden case was what we'd call a cold case, 1551. So almost exactly 40 years before the play was first performed in around 1590. Uh, he, he was um, bludgeoned and stabbed uh, in his own parlour. In his house in faversham kent by a pair of uh villains named Shakebag and black will and that's not dramatic uh, license that's actually there in the chronicle account of the uh of the murder and the, they in turn the hitmen were put up with by arden's wife alice who was in, adulterously involved with a tailor called mosby and who wanted to be rid of her husband and The authors took this from the Chronicles of England by Raphael Hollinshead, uh, a book that Shakespeare often consulted for more distant history, but which also contained um, annals, as it were, of more recent decades. And so, this um, presumably fairly unimpeachable source is what the author or authors of Arden used. But increasingly, the emphasis becomes on topicality, as you suggest. In fact, in um, September 1602, the minor dramatist but a a very talented dramatist called William Horton who had already written a couple of um, true crime plays for the Rose Theatre was paid in advance by Philip Henslow the owner of the Rose Theatre to write a play about a murder which at that point had happened just eight days earlier so that's topicality it's almost a sort of news desk situation you know there's Henslow (laughs) Henslow saying you know calling in the cub reporter William Horton and saying vicar sliced up malevolently by this yahoo called Francis Cartwright uh, somewhere near Market Raisin in Lincolnshire. Get down there and find all about it and bring me the copy as soon as you can and here's 40 shillings for you.
1: And would it be that there were people you'd sort of go you'd go to the execution the public execution of the murderer and then you'd get to relive it in the theatre a few days later or if you couldn't make it to Lincolnshire for the execution you'd get to watch the reenactment of the crime and the Theatre instead.
0: Well, exactly, and indeed, um, executions have been uh, in Elizabethan England have been described as the theatre of cruelty in themselves. They were designed to be uh, theatrical spectacles, which which drew the crowds, as we know. Um, So yes, indeed, um, Arden in fact doesn't show the uh, execution of the culprits on the stage, and in fact, it would be difficult because Alice Arden was actually burned at the stake for her the murder of her husband. Uh, Just a a footnote on that. Um, In the actual law court, a wife uh, found guilty of murdering her husband was deemed guilty of petty treason, a sort of catch-all crime which was obviously lesser than high treason but still attracted very drastic penalties, uh, including, in this case, burning at the stake. A paternalistic and misogynistic sort of uh, idea that um, murdering your husband is a kind of treason as it were, against the state, because the husband within the microcosm of the household is, as it were, the king. That's the implication of of that sort of ruling. But indeed, they uh, in in the later true crime plays that follow on from Arden, uh, in many ways inspired by Arden, but of course always wanting to go that little bit further, do have the culprits hanged on stage. So that, uh, as you say, the execution is well satisfyingly. You might actually get to watch both of them, but the, you 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 watched um, you watched them swing at the end. Though I'm not necessarily suggesting that, that that sort of retributive justice is necessarily what the crowd themselves came to the plays for, or indeed not necessarily what the authors were most interested in. It's kind of what was required of them.
1: Yeah, and I suppose the question is how moralizing are they or were these plays? I mean, are they presented as as moral fables or is it more ambiguous than that?
0: The answer is very, very moralising, though, as I've just suggested, um, maybe that's not particularly how the author might want to frame it, but how it had to be framed within the conventions. Yeah, they're presented as, as warnings. Indeed, one of the leading true crime plays of the uh, last years, of the 1590s, was called A Warning for Fair Women again featuring a murderous wife. I should say on this question of the wives that so often features the villains in these plays, uh, the murderers, this does go against the actual evidence, patchy though it is, about uh, domestic homicides in Elizabethan England, which actually, actually suggests, or statistical analysis of them suggests, that uh, in about two thirds of the cases, the perpetrator was the husband. So this murderous wife, who features again and again, is well a bit of a construct a misogynist construct if you like or indeed a sort of crowd-pleasing construct uh, rather like the, um, the anti-catholic and indeed anti-semitic elements that appear on stage so it's uh, it's uh not borne out by the evidence in that case uh, or in that sense so the true crime plays are in a sense diverting a bit from the actuality though the representing of actuality is very much top of their agenda i would say rather than pressing a moral lesson on the audience. So the um, the plays, well, i say there's a dozen of them that are known and not all of those are fully known in a textual sense. Uh, in quite a few cases, we only have the uh, titles of these plays. And in some cases, then one can reconstruct partly what the contents is because it's about a criminal case that one might know about from other sources. But in the extant texts, um, there's a predominance of wicked wives and even more a predominance because a Yorkshire tragedy, um, another well-known one, uh, features a husband who sort of runs berserk and kills a couple of his children, two of his children and wounds his wife. So the marital domestic household is very much the arena which these playwrights uh, are looking to, um, well, to take the audience into and to watch how this uh, violent event sort of disrupt that household. And in that aspect, one can see certain parallels with other fashions of the 1590s, but in the rather opposite camp of of comedy. There's both the humours comedies, which are about the sort of foibles and fads of the middle classes, humorously connected to the old physiological uh, idea of the four humours and their imbalance producing all sorts of quirks of behaviour, and then They, in turn, evolve into the highly sociological and satirical and often rather smutty city comedies that were um, very much the um, taste in the beginning of the Jacobean period, uh, 1603 on the early 17th, the first decade of the 17th century. And both of those are comedic uh, genres, or really the same genre uh, evolving, uh, that uh, focus on middle class domestic lives. In other words, one might say, on people like you and me, and they are sort of saying that to the audience. So there's a slight sort of precursor in the already popular genre of the history play. But they, those history plays are, of course, about kings and princes and noblemen and bygone kings, indeed. And they are full of spectacular sort of stylized battles they're full of sort of patriotic propagandist me- messages about how we whacked the French and so on. So they are they are sort of um, dramatization of, a to some extent, factual material, but they're very different from this new breed, which is focusing in this what was to then very modern way on real lives in cities and uh, particularly, and this um, sudden eruption of violence in the household and in the within the sort of uh, space of, of marriage.
1: And they were described on their title pages, some of them as tragedies, weren't they? They were described as lamentable tragedies. And, f- and from a certain point of view, I mean, Hamlet is a story about a husband murdered by his wife and the disruption that causes to the family. It just ha- They happen to be the royal family of Denmark, so it doesn't count. And you know, it's set hundreds of years earlier. Is there a sense in which these true crime things Plays were not seen as tragedy because they were ordinary people, not not kings and queens.
0: Well, they are, as you say, described as tragedies. Um, that's very much the word that's used, but always, the, often the word "but true is put before it. So while we talk about true crime, they talk about true tragedies. The lamentable and true tragedy, I think, is a phrase that occurs both on the Certainly on the title page of Arden of Faversham, and um, I think uh, it's used again, or it's certainly used in the news pamphlets, which are have become one of the major sources of the true crime phase. So, the, as you say, tragedy traditionally represented heroes who were of high sort of royal or aristocratic stock. So these, are, this is a sort of new take on tragedy, but they do call it tragedy. And indeed, I suppose they definitely are tragedies, as we call it, in that sort of looser sense we use the word tragedy. A husband killing two of his children because he's sort of um, gone frantic with them um, drinking too much and worried about his debts, uh, which is one way of synopsizing the story of a Yorkshire tragedy, would today be called a tragedy. And I suppose they're using the word tragedy in that, um, in that, in that sort of looser sense or that idea that tragedy can be enacted within the more ordinary recognizable world that you the audience uh, are part of another word they could have used but didn't uh, because it didn't really exist in that sense is documentary that's what often what they're reaching for when they talk about this true and homeborn tragedy uh home in the sense that it's the language that's being used is unadorned the epilogue of arden I could quote briefly, we hope you'll pardon this naked tragedy wherein no phylid points are foisted in to make it gracious to the eye or ear. For simple truth is gracious enough and needs no finer points of glosing stuff. No glosing stuff, glosing bit like glossing, glossing over things, tell it straight the anonymous author of A Warning for Fair Women, claims in his prologue to add or else diminish ought would be an error. He's told it like it is. He hasn't added or taken away anything from the true story. Of course, a bit of an unlikely claim. And in fact, A Warning for Fair Women, although it was a very popular play, is not one of the best.
1: In the question of it being the idea that this is what really happened, it is unadorned, would they have had any sense because nowadays there's docudramas true tr- true crime things which use transcripts of court cases for example which use the actual verbatim words was there any sense of that that you'd have to quote people say exactly what people said or or was or did that idea of uh not really exist
0: uh, i i'd say again it, it, we're at the dawning of it because um one talks a little loosely about these plays being journalistic and the word journalistic's a little bit of an anachronism because uh, uh, no writers had there were no journals for any writers to write for no uh, recurrently published uh, journals not until the beginning of the 17th century 1630s or so but uh, this idea of reportage and 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 um, what we would call journalism and the idea of the verbatim it's coming in and of course this 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 is important idea about these plays the kind of sources they're using um Arden of Faversham used the chronicles which is a, a highly respectable large sort of book uh, officially sanctioned account of um, recent history what the follow-up true crime plays true crime writers used was much more down market the news pamphlets the chapbooks, the ballads which were the first sort of reporting of these murders And certainly, they take over from those pamphlets some of the sensationalism and some of the um, sort of luridness that those pamphlets and ballads deal in. And in the case of the ballad, certainly there are supposed verbatims, particularly repentance speeches on the scaffold by the culprits, the murderers, which are given in the ballad or recited in the ballad uh, uh, as if verbatim. Um, Having said that, I'm not sure that the true crime plays claim to or do at any point contain actual words spoken in the performing of the actual crimes. Uh, But there's that idea that uh, that these are real people with these names and they're giving voice, that that they are being given a voice on the stage. And of course, there is in some of the better ones, like Arden itself, the retributive moral sort of um, framework is sometimes undercut a little by a smidgen of sympathy for the perpetrators. Arden himself is not a terribly attractive man, a rather avaricious sort of uh, businessman, a rather buff sort of figure who one doesn't imagine uh, is, is a great sort of um, partner for his, his wife, who is, is a rather more sort of romantically minded woman. So it can be played that Alice Arden is in a way the protagonist and there is some element of sympathy. But the obviously the moral it's a bit of a news of the world thing you know you want the lurid, but you also want the, <laughs> the moral outrage and that's basically the formula that they they're both news pamphlets certainly and the plays and the news pamphlets also often have rather gruesome woodcuts illustrating the title page and those are a sort of further um further sort of spur to dramatization
1: and presumably that the plays are able to reach a wider audience because the pamphlets required a literate audience, literate readers, and the plays didn't, or is that...?
0: Well, I think I'd put it the other way around. The, the news pamphlets and the ballads have become... Uh, well, the news pamphlets have become a very popular medium because of the rise of literacy. But I think you could certainly say that the, the true crime play, as well as, um, you know, having those interesting sort of links with other kinds of evolution of the, of the theatre in the 1590s, the sophistication of the theatre in the 1590s, the range of the theatre in the 1590s. Uh, you can also say it's a commercial move by the play companies to sort of annex that terrain of cheap popular print or to exploit it or to sort of join the bandwagon. And so the people that uh, read the the uh, pamphlets would would also want to go and see them the film of the book as it were and then as you say a, a large proportion of the audience would not necessarily be literate and would therefore be getting it for the first time from the stage but there's a sort of symbiosis there and one, one feels it's a bit of a canny move by the play companies always looking to increase audience obviously bums on seats or feet on the yard so there's a sort of annexing of a, what's already a popular medium. And of course, the there's competition between the play companies is another very important aspect of this story. I take the, the, the sort of high water mark of the true crime, this first true crime boom to be 1599, when that, that, that play, A Warning for Fair Women, is being performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men at the Globe, Shakespeare's company, And meanwhile, at the Rose, a hundred yards away uh, down Maiden Lane in Southwark, no less than three murder plays, true crime plays are commissioned, but for the Admiral's men who are the rival company playing at the Rose. And by this point of the late 1590s, this is really a sort of duopoly between these two um, play companies, Chamberlain's men and the Admiral's men. And the rivalry obviously is intense. And so there are three plays um, commissioned, we know this from Philip Henslow's account books. Unfortunately, we have no equivalent to Philip Henslow's account books for the Globe, so we know rather less about the Globe's repertoire than we do about the Roses. But three plays are commissioned, the first of which, um, unexpectedly perhaps, unfortunately never printed, and therefore it's a lost play, was authored by none other than Ben Johnson, as at that point a very little known um, actor and journeyman playwright and thomas decker another up-and-coming writer who will contribute to that uh, those city comedies and so johnson and decker set to work on a play whose title we know called page of plymouth about the murder of a man called william page down in plymouth and uh, we also know the pamphlet that was the source of that so that pamphlet that murder took place in 1591 so we're getting a bit closer. Uh, we're not quite up to the uh, eight-day eight-day turnaround that was uh, at least envisaged by Philip Henslow a bit later. Um, but, um, and uh, and um, we know that each of those authors received four pounds uh, for the completed script, but we also know that Philip Henslow dispersed 10 pounds to buy women's gowns for page of Thrones. So interestingly, more was being spent on the costumes than it was on the script.
1: This is the LRB podcast.
0: If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just one pound per issue, go to lrb.me/forward/slash/listen. That's lrb.me/forward/slash/listen, or click on the link below.
1: But also the Globe in 1599. What was that? Henry V, Julius Caesar.
0: As you like it, yes, absolutely. So a warning for fair women, which is just, was printed in 1599. I'm making a bit of a, uh, not an assumption, but a deduction that um, it was performed at the Globe in that opening season at the Globe. The Globe opened its gates for the first time in 1599, The famous story of the timbers being carried down from the theatre at Shoreditch to um, create the Globe. So the theatre, the, the, the 1599, sometime in the late, probably the late summer of 1599, the Globe had its first season. As you say, Julius Caesar is known to be one of the plays because it's um, mentioned in a diary entry of a traveller who saw it there. Henry V is certainly supposed to be this wooden O. is part of the uh, what the chorus talks about and is thought to refer to the Globe. And among them, it seems, uh, probably was A Warning for Fair Women, this anonymous true crime play based on a murder in London from the 1570s. Because the quarto of the A Warning for Fair Women, it was described as lately performed by the Lord Chamberlain's Men, and that quarto came out sometime after November 1599 when it was registered at station Hall. Um, so it probably refers to it having played a sort of crowd pleaser as part of the repertoire for that first season at the Globe, and the 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 sudden hurry of the uh, over at the Rose to uh, produce these true crime plays. Uh, in competition, probably because of the awarding for fair women. Um, interestingly, of course, in 1599, Shakespeare was almost certainly at work on Hamlet. And Hamlet does contain what's almost uh, very evidently a close reflection of some lines in A Warning for Fair Woman, in which uh, there's a description of a woman who had murdered her husband again. And uh, this is a a story that's told within the play of A Warning for Fair and how she was moved to confess to her crime when she watched a play being performed by travelling players, in fact in Kings Lynn where she lived, and this play was in itself about the murder by a wife of her husband. And because of this close congruence of the subject of the play she was watching and her own guilty conscience, she confessed, she was moved to confess to her crime at that performance. And this is very clearly the sort of um, inspiration for this idea that Shakespeare imports into the story of Hamlet, of the play that Hamlet sets up in order to catch the conscience of the murderous Claudius. And um, Hamlet's sort of um, speech about this, I'll I'll have something like the murder of my father, performed uh, by the players. And we learn that the although Hamlet calls this play the trap because it's intended to trap Claudius, he also tells us, or we learn from his conversation with the players, that it's based on a play called The Murder of Gonzago, a non-existent play. But uh, Hamlet says of it, uh, it's the very image of a murder that was done in Vienna. The story is extant. It is, in other words, a true crime play, just like a warning which was then being performed. By his fellow players, uh, not impossibly, Shakespeare himself might have performed in it. We know he performed in Johnson's Every Man in His Humour uh, a year earlier. There's, so there's a sort of congruence between that great tragedy, Hamlet, and the true crime play that's part of the, the the Chamberlain's Men's repertoire. And indeed, Hamlet refers to the players as the abstract and brief chronicles of our time, stressing this sort of reportorial. Aspect of the players that ties in with these true crime plays. So we see the sparks of the true crime plays lighting up corners of um plays that we might consider far greater than them. But the roses' contribution to the genre is resolutely downmarket and presents sort of what one might call pulp melodrama, full of sort of um gore and uh, and violence. And um One of the three plays only survives, but... um,
1: And which is that? Is that the...
0: It's a play which doesn't really have a proper title because we only know it in terms of its gestation uh, from Henslow's account books, where he calls it Beach's Tragedy, because it's about the murder of a man called Beach. Although he does at one point describe it as the tragedy of Thomas Merry, and Thomas Merry is the murderer, so I don't know which he's thinking it should best be called by tradition it's the murder the murderee or the victim who gets into the title but it, it actually appears in a composite quarto publication called rather un, un, unexcitedly two lamentable tragedies and it's it's sort of there are two play scripts being interleaved or wo- interwoven into one sort of performance one imagines or anyway to, into this published text It's almost certainly the play that was written for the Rose, which appears as one of those two lamentable tragedies. The other lamentable tragedy that appears in that text is, in fact, a fictional one. But sort of salvaging this uh, Rose play, which was written by two two up-and-coming writers in the Rose or Admiral's Men's stable, John Day and William Horton. And it dramatizes a, a murder that took place very close to the Rose, in fact, just across the river. In Thames Street, which runs more or less parallel with the north bank of the Thames, um, if you came out of the Rose and took a, a, a wherry or water taxi across the river, if you lived in the in the city itself, you would land very close to Thames Street and indeed the murderer. When he ferried the dismembered body of his victim over to the Paris Gardens, he would have landed at Falcon Stairs on the south bank of the river where many of the audience of the play would have landed on their way to the play. So we're right in that idea of this very recognizable, familiar landscape. And indeed in the prologue of the play, the the, the writers say, uh, this is a play which most here know. It was five years ago that it was uh, the murder was committed, but that's not very long ago. So the, the assumption was the audience was coming to see, enacted a murder, which had been a local sensation. And um, the play is indeed very um, topographically detailed. The, the, the murderer is a man called Thomas Merry. He runs an ale house. It's called The Bull and was probably on Bull Wharf, which is just the eastern stretch of Thames Street. It's a double murder of Robert Beach, a chandler, and his servant, Thomas Winchester. One of the murders occurs at uh, Beach's at uh, uh, Merry's Alehouse, The other at Beech's shop, which is on Lambert Hill. The murderer, Mary, has a servant called uh, Harry, who absconds in fear and spends the night in a hayloft in Three Cranes' yard. And then Mary, as I say, ferries the dismembered body of Beech across to the South Bank and dumps it in a ditch in Paris Gardens, which is just a stone throw from the Rose. So there's a a, a bit of a frisson for the audience seeing this Uh, this enacted in what they know to be their own backyard.
1: As you say in the the piece that one of the writers of that, John Day, killed a man and was tried for murder. And and did that happen before or after he wrote?
0: It happened just before, but it it could well have been still hanging over him because um, the actual killing, I think I'm right in saying, took place in June 1599. And it was of a fellow playwright, Henry Porter. Day was um, uh, arrested uh, uh, as a felon, as a murderer, uh, he was later acquitted uh, by uh, at the Southwark like assizes on a plea of self-defense. So he did get off and continued a, a, a rather prolific writing career. Uh, he's actually a, a pretty good writer. But um, at that point, he was penning Beach's tragedy, uh, which is probably the most um, gruesome of the extant true crime. plays. It does have the body being dismembered on stage and is written in this wonderfully terse sort of downbeat kind of hard-boiled sort of way. He doesn't attempt any kind of poetry at all. This might be partly to do with the fact it's a, re- a sort of reported text or a slightly mangled text, but I don't think so. Um, I think it's intrinsic to the play. Also, the, 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 there's no real motive for the murder. It's just a, a, a murder of a richer neighbour. Business is bad at the alehouse. Mary is short of money. So he cooks up this idea to, to kill a richer neighbour who's one of his customers. And uh, But when he opens the purse, he finds there's only four groats in it.
1: <laughs> so John Day was killed a man accused of murder. Christopher Marlowe, of course, was murdered in a pub in Deptford. <laughs> some, some of us have written quite a, long,
0: quite a long book yeah. to, to, to explain that it wasn't. So that's what was pub, but we'll, we'll, we'll set that aside. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> but not, neither yeah. of the words tavern and brawl, which are the two words most usually used. yeah. He,
1: neither of the words <laughs> are accurate. <laughs> he was possibly playing backgammon
0: however as you do this is quite correct um tom yes i mean that's not from the coroner's report or the coroner's inquest which is our main documentary source for the killing of Marla, although um, a very questionable source considering the nature of the witnesses and there were only two witnesses hence not really a brawl it was a, an event that happened in a closed room four people go into the room and only three come out alive i don't really call that a brawl but um, There is a a slightly later account, uh, an independent account. There are two or three independent accounts published within a few years of the killing. And one of them has has the feel of having some inside knowledge. And one can actually work out how the author, a man called William Vaughan, might have acquired this because he has sort of connections that lead to the Earl of Northumberland, who was one of Marlowe's friends and patrons. And one of the details he puts in, which isn't found in the coroner's report, he has a lot of accuracy in his account, which... Uh, makes one want to trust the things he says that aren't in the coroner's report and one of them is that he's uh, that, that they were playing at backgammon when this um supposed quarrel arose thomas arden was murdered while playing backgammon and um i have wondered in fact i don't wonder in my book on on the reckoning on Marlowe's death i wondered while i was writing this article for the first time ah was this um a sort of quote of the arden killing either by the man who's writing this brief account, so he's actually embroidering it and thinking of the Arden killing, or more sinisterly, was it a sort of quote by Marlowe's killers that this is appropriately a sort of theatrical killing, and also the the very practical that they're sort of borrowing a modus operandi. In the play, Arden, Black Will, one of the hitmen, so it does actually sort of slightly sort of choreograph the, the setting so that it'll be easier to murder Arden. During this game of backgammon, he tells Palisard and his wife, Let your husband sit upon a stool at the table that I may come behind him cunningly. And, and indeed, it's all part of the story of Marlowe's killing in, in the inquest report also that the supposed self defense killing of Marlowe by Ingram Freiser was because he was hemmed in on this bench while playing backgammon and couldn't get away from Marlowe who'd attacked him. And this is a wonderful. Story that's told at the inquest uh, because there's only one knife used in the killing of Marlowe, and that's Ingram Fraser's knife. But by virtue of this story of him being hemmed in when Marlowe attacked him and pulled out Fraser's knife and hit him about the head with it, and then Fraser being hemmed in could only turn round and, and struggle, and in the struggle, drove this knife straight into Marlowe's eye, punctiliously recorded by the coroner as two inches into Marlowe's eye. Well two inches is not a very substantial length and until you start measuring how far it goes inwards from your eye socket. hence another of William Vaughan's little details that he gives us bits of Marlowe's brain coming out at the dagger's point when it was taken out of it. So was the murder in the uh, it, on stage in Arden of Faversham a kind of inspiration for the modus operandi of the killers of Marlowe and the the backgammon detail being part of the setup and indeed a very practical sort of idea for how a man might be conveniently disadvantaged for foul play to take place upon him.
1: And as as far as we know, Shakespeare was never involved in any murders himself. But in, in The Lodger, you describe he was involved in a court case. And although it didn't ever come to murder, it's the kind of situation that could have done, right, the setup of his His landlords, well, I mean, I'll probably get it wrong if I try and tell the story, So, (laughs) you.
0: Well, uh, uh, there was a certain, yes, it it was certainly a a great sort of split within the house. Uh, The the, um, Shakespeare the Lodger in Silver Street in 1604 asked by his landlady, a rather sparky French lady called Marie Mountjoy, to um, help to persuade the Mountjoy's apprentice, also a Frenchman, to marry their daughter. And apparently Shakespeare did do this, but then the the ructions that followed were because the crabby Mr Mountjoy refused to pay up the promised uh, marriage portion or dowry, and the case finally came to court um, eight years later. And Shakespeare gave some rather inconclusive evidence uh, as to um, how much Mountjoy had promised and um, why it was that it hadn't been paid up. But as you say, he does um, he does appear in this. Wonderfully domestic setting of the uh, his lodgings in Silver Street, quite respectable street in Cripplegate, northwestern corner of the city, uh, inside the city walls, with this family of um, well, they they're tire makers. Doesn't mean they're members of the Jacobean motor trade, but they they made tires or attires, which are ornamental headgear for courtly ladies. Indeed, at one point for Queen Anne, the, the wife of King James, just around the time that. Mr. Shakespeare, as he appears in the depositions of the court case, or Master Shakespeare, as it probably should be said, was lodging there. And um, she's a very interesting and rather attractive character. Mr. Mountjoy, Christopher Mountjoy, a Huguenot refugee from Picardy, is um, a rather unattractive character, uh, certainly as he emerges from the evidence given during the court case, crabby, stingy, and rather, um, well, uh, not a very loving father to his daughter who he actually tries
1: to cut out of his will. A ripe candidate for, for, a for right a candidate for, victim, for a, a
0: knife in the back exactly yes. but clo- closer to to that world, Shakespeare comes not primarily through his um, acquaintanceship with the Mountjoys with whom he probably lodged for a couple of years, but his acquaintance with a man called George Wilkins who was actually one of the witnesses in the case against mountjoy for the failure to pay the dowry uh, because mountjoy's new son-in-law and and mountjoy's daughter went to lodge with george wilkins after they'd finally after relations had broken down so badly in the house that they that they left the house and wilkins um, as well as being the landlord briefly of um, the mountjoy's daughter and son-in-law well he had two not entirely unrelated professions one was Writer, or mostly sort of aspirant writer, although he, he had a, a brief flurry of literary activity, and the other was brothel keeper. So this rather interesting low-life character became, at some, at one point, a supplier of texts to the King's Men,
1: Shakespeare's company. Uh, he wrote the beginning of Pericles, didn't he? So he, and he so also the... is
0: certainly um, widely held uh, on various forms of uh, stylistic and lexical analysis uh, evidence to be the the author of the first two acts of Pericles uh, he certainly wrote a sort of strange kind of prose version of Pericles that came out a little bit after the play and he also wrote a true crime play although he had the chance to write a true crime play but wrote a, a fictional extravaganza instead it was based on a real murder case the same murder case that the Yorkshire tragedy was based on the Calvary case very uh Upsetting story of a, a father who uh, sort of flipped out and killed two of his children. So there are two plays uh, put on by Shakespeare's company based on this murder case. But Wilkins's one is called The Miseries of Enforced Marriage and it was almost entirely a, a story of the, of the sort of lead up to the Calvary killing. He it, it changes the name, so Calverley becomes Scarborough, a reference to his Yorkshire origins, a, a move away from the true crime. Idea that you use real names and real locations, and it becomes a sort of low life saga full of lots of very sort of raunchy detail, which is Wilkins's sort of real forte as a writer. And then, just as all this seems to be heading towards the actual killing, then Wilkins manufactures this totally unlikely uh, a happy ending where everyone gets reconciled. And so, this um, I point to this this is 1606 or so he's writing. So Wilkins has turned this potential true crime play into a sort of tragicomic riff and sort of picturesque, episodic sort of um, a tragic comedy. And I take this as the sort of the um, sort of decline of the true crime, a brief true crime craze of the uh, late 1590s and early 1600s.
1: So the question is, why didn't the Elizabethan true crime true crime drama persist into the Jacobean era?
0: I think the decline of the true crime boom would would probably be down to two sort of reasons. One is the very quick-changing theatrical fashions of the time. It, it is a boom time. Tastes are changing very fast. And I'd say those city comedies, which once mentioned as somewhat analogous to the true crime because it takes you into domestic interiors and shows you things happening within them. I think that was more to the Jacobean taste. They wanted this sort of very kind of urbane,
1: topical satire of the city comedies. With something like Bartholomew Fair count as one of
0: those. Yeah, that that's a bit raunchier. That, y- yes, I mean, that's um, it's more things like The, the Malcontent and um, The Dutch Courtesan by John Marston. Johnson's comedies, certainly. Volpone is a sort of city comedy, really. So sort of topical satire is very sociological, and they're kind of more to the Jacobean taste. And also you're seeing the true crime getting assimilated into fictional tragedy, like we mentioned about Hamlet, using a true crime trope, as it were. Also, there is a sort of um, analogous genre that comes up, is generally called the domestic tragedy, which is fictional domestic tragedy. So in a way, the true crime impetus is then veered away into Thomas Hayward's um, A Woman Killed with Kindness. It published in 1607, the same year as Wilkins's *Miseries of Enforced Marriage*, so that that's another reason that it's being assimilated into fiction. Which, of course, true crime is always flirting with fiction. True crime has the feel of fiction, but uh, but sticks, or is, and the rubric says based on actual events. A particular reason might also be uh, the case of a play called *The Tragedy of Gowrie*, which was put on by the King's Men, uh, Shakespeare's company, a couple of years before those those plays about the Calvary murder and this was the tragedy of Gowrie was a dramatization of the attempted assassination of King James when he was still King James of Scotland but fairly recent 1600 Earl of Gowrie and his henchmen had attempted to kill King James the play was is lost why was it lost well it's almost certainly because it was suppressed when it appeared on at the globe there's a letter written by John Chamberlain a well-known letter writer and retailer of news to his various um well-off sort of patrons uh, and he tells us about the tragedy of Gary has been played twice on the public stage at the Globe by the King's men this is in December 1604 he thinks it's not going to last it's a, there's been displeasure at court whether because the matter hasn't been well handled in other words because they've departed from the official version of the story or whether it's deemed unfit that a living prince should be personated on stage. I should think both of those reasons are possible. There's a sort of official pamphlet about the Gowrie assassination, very much encouraged by James, who had it frequently reprinted, because the whole thing was sort of spun as an example of King James's divinely protected kingship, the fact that he managed to escape this assassination attempt. But it's very likely that it was royal displeasure at the tragedy of Gowrie that it was hauled off stage after a couple of performances and that Shakespeare's company, The King's Men, were probably a little bit um, ticked off about it. But there is um, a very um, plausible sort of literary historical theory or observation that the tragedy of Gowrie may well have fed into much better-known play about the killing of a Scottish king, which was written a couple of years later, and that is, of course, Macbeth. And that the Macbeth was um, succeeded uh, or was uh, permitted and indeed popular and probably much approved of by King James because it treated that whole dangerous subject of regicide, especially in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot, which made it a very topical hot potato, an attempted regicide of the very Scottish King James, because it did so more fictionally. So there's an idea there of displeasure in high places of this idea of documentary productions in the public playhouse. Well, someone, not necessarily Shakespeare, someone thought it was a good idea, you know, true crime with a royal twist. Let's put on the tragedy of Gary. Obviously, this didn't meet with uh, much approval in higher places. And so there may well have been some nervousness attached to the true crime genre. Is it worth risking showing this as it really happened? Why don't we just fictionalise it like we always used to? And in a way, the genre sort of falters away at that point. So it really has a boom time of about 15 years from Arden in 1590 to these plays which explicitly avoid giving a recent murder a full true crime uh, treatment. Of course, murder never goes out of style. It seems we need our our dose of disquiet uh, fairly regularly administered. And so there are just all the other different ways of uh, representing murder, its suspense, and all sorts of other um, aspects that carry on regardless. But the idea of actually showing a documentary account of a murder case on stage uh, goes quiet for quite a long while. And our true crime craze of the, uh, of the 21st century is uh, really a, a distant echo of that first and in some cases, very uh, powerful presentation of murder on stage.
1: Charles Nicholl, thank you very much. My pleasure. You can read Charles Nicholls' piece on Elizabethan true crime in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Jenny Turner on Hannah Arendt, Andrew O'Hagan on Joan Erdley, and Pooja Bhatia on Aussie Media. On next week's podcast the fourth and final episode of Irina Dumitrescu and Mary Wellesley's series of encounters with medieval women on Marjorie Kemp. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones.